Hello, and welcome to the Music of Sight podcast. I'm Rachel Roundtree. And I'm Nicholas Mulroy. Each episode, we'll be taking a close-up look at one of my favourite paintings. And I'll be weaving a musical journey for us based on that painting. This podcast is a culture fix that puts art and music side by side. A chance to find connections and to see and hear things afresh. So welcome to this first episode of our month of music and art. As the winter nights are drawing in, we thought we'd start by looking at Van Gogh's Starry Night. But before we do that, I was just wondering if you've been to see any exhibitions recently that you want to tell us about. Yeah, I went to see Cézanne at the Tate Modern, which was like slightly unusual, I suppose, because he's old, right? He's like early 20th century, but really comprehensive. Loads of paintings, loads of wonderful paintings, lots of letters and sketches and that kind of stuff kind of around his work. Um, and just a real sense of what a central figure he is at the start of modernism, really, the, the, the reasons that Picasso and Matisse both called him the father of us all, um, like thoroughly modern show of a completely modern artist. Oh, great. Um, I headed over to Sickert, at, which I think was an exhibition that had been at the Tate a while ago, um, and it was in the Petit Palais in Paris, and yeah, it was really surprising. There were found some of his work slightly unnerving, slightly uneasy. And they had put in some other artist work, which was wonderful by, there were a couple of whistlers, tiny little miniature whistler sketches, which were absolutely sublime. So that was just a really nice surprise. I love it when you go to see one artist and you bump into another one. So perhaps shall we dive into this week's Starry Night? In 1786, Vincent van Gogh wrote to his brother Theo, telling him, everything changes the moment the stars come out. He was a man fascinated by nature who had an almost evangelical desire to put onto canvas the intense emotional response that he had to the natural world. Thirteen years after writing this letter, he would create what would become one of the most famous versions of the night sky ever painted. This is a night sky that whirls before our eyes that doesn't seem to be able to sit still. And yet, look closely, and a sleepy French village appears, adding a more earthly human dimension to this vision of celestial wonder. Imagine that the world as you experience it is so full of life, so teeming with vibrant energy, that it's overwhelming. This sensation means that for your family, your friends, and your colleagues, and your teachers, your students, life with you is difficult, tense, even unbearable. Your work, which you pour yourself into unrelentingly and prolifically, is not admired, it's misunderstood or even mocked, despite your own conviction that it is worthy and even world-changing. The combination of all these things leads you to take your life age 37 during one of the most creative and fertile periods in all art. After you die... It turns out that this level of perception and attunement to the world around you was your superpower all along. Yes, so we will be spending this episode looking closely at Van Gogh's Starry Night, one of the most famous, perhaps, pictures in the history of art. So this was a painting that was painted in 1889, as you said, the year before 
Um, he dies aged only 37. He paints it while he's a resident at the Saint-Paul-de-Moselle Asylum in Saint-Rémy, which he had checked himself into. He was in a period of his life when he wasn't well at all. We'll talk more about that, I think, a bit later. If you want to go and see this painting, it's a bit of a trek, this one. It's over in MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And it's not an enormous painting, 72 centimetres in height, 92 in width, so both sides coming in at under a metre. So a relatively small tableau, but it's one that really packs a punch, doesn't it? Do you want to describe it for any of our listeners who perhaps aren't looking at it right now? Yeah, it's tricky to put into words such a famous, and I hesitate to use the word, iconic image. But here we go. The night sky is made up of these great swirls of blue and yellow, almost like waves in a storm. We can see that it's the night, but the colours, I think, are much too bright and the stars are way too large. So we can also see that it's a dream or a memory of the night rather than a representation of the thing itself. In person, I think the image is quite flat so that everything kind of spills out of the canvas at the viewer. Uh, And in the foreground, we see a town with a church, houses, uh, cypress trees blowing in the wind, where the lights of the houses are much paler and less vivid than the light of the stars in the sky. I think more than anything, this is a painting of night, but of its feeling and its motion. Painting with Van Gogh, especially later on, closer to his death, is not so much a mirror of the world, but a kind of psychological scan of it. Yes, absolutely. This painting very much gets to perhaps how all of us might feel looking at a stunning night sky. We always like to start our episodes by trying to set the scene a bit or trying to travel perhaps to where this painting sets. So I thought today we'll start our episode by heading to a piece of music that has a very strong link to Arles, which is the town which we'll hear was so important to Van Gogh. We're going to hear Bizet's Arlesienne, which an extract from a suite. This is a suite that Bizet wrote for a play. The play was not not a success at all, but his music that he wrote for it turned out to be incredibly successful. And Arlesienne is a woman from Arles, and this play tells the story of a thwarted love story. You'll hear the there's a, the drum and a flute. These are sort of traditional instruments from the folk music from this part of France. And Arles, we've decided to head there because Arles was where. Van Gogh had real hopes and dreams, didn't he, of setting up a sort of community of artists down there. He wanted to make a place where artists could come and work. The scenery down in Provence is beautiful. It's famed for its its light, the light that falls onto the mountains. Think of Cézanne's images of Saint-Victoire. Um, it's a place that has such rich, fertile ground, literally, for artists. Unfortunately, Van Gogh was somebody who struggled all his life with mental illness, somebody who never quite until he eventually started painting and even that was hard for him, never, he found it hard to find his place, didn't he? It, I think it's tried some sort of religious missionary work that didn't work out. He tried some art dealing work that with a family business that didn't work. It was only when he's aged 27 that he starts drawing and painting, so really quite late in his life. And it's two years before he dies, that he heads down to Arles with this dream of setting up a community of artists. 
we're going to hear the Fachendol from the Arnesian Suite. This is going to be played by the Victor Herbert Orchestra. And I just thought it might be fun to try and find a recording that was recorded relatively close to when today's painting was painted. Um, this is a recording from 1910. So it might not sound exactly how you're used to hearing it, if this is a piece you know. So that was the Farandol from Bizet's Arlesian Suite. Bizet, in fact, another reason I thought I'd put Bizet next to Van Gogh is that he is somebody who, very similar to Van Gogh, he only became very well known after his death. His success, his posthumous success, is so much bigger than when he was alive. Works that have now become absolute uh, stalwarts of the repertoire, Carmen, works like that, just weren't that successful when he first them and yeah go on yeah, well I was just going to say he wrote Carmen uh, for the Opera Comique in Paris didn't he and it was a f- it was a flop at its premiere and he he died still thinking it was a flop which I think is something a real point of similarity with Van Gogh who died having sold I think one painting it's almost unimaginable isn't it yeah it's funny isn't it how some of these works that become so familiar to us so familiar even, in fact, almost we almost, I find I sort of almost stopped, stopped looking at them. I was really pleased for this episode to come back and be able to sit down and have a really, really long, good hard stare at this painting because, yeah, sometimes we get so familiar with an artist's work and we can certainly forget that that wasn't a level of success that he had at all in his lifetime. Yeah, it's the same in music and, and pictures, isn't it? That you, because you know something, you think, oh, I know this one and sort of walk past it or, or don't really listen to it. And actually, it's really nice to reacquaint yourself properly with the, the real nuts and bolts of it. Shall we reacquaint ourselves then and just, just take a slightly closer look at, at this painting? Because as you used to have alluded to earlier, it isn't, he doesn't try in this picture to make an exact replica of what he could see. We know at this stage in his life, as we said, he had checked himself into uh, what was then called the asylum um, in Saint-Rémy-de-Mosol. In fact, this, it was a, a mental institution, but a very, a very beautiful one. It was set in old monastic buildings. Um, there are paintings that he painted from the courtyard that are incredibly beautiful. He was surrounded by trees. And he could come and go as he pleased, I think. Is that right? It wasn't, it, he wasn't kind of imprisoned there. He checked himself in and was able to go and work in the fields and paint, as we know, paint the fields and paint the landscapes. Absolutely. And it, yes, it had been his decision. He felt he wasn't well enough to manage on his own. He, he goes there shortly after he's mutilated his ear and he's had his big falling out with, with Gauguin. And so we know, because you can go into this building, we know that he hasn't in this painting tried to draw something that he could see from any of the windows. The, the angle isn't at all a true representation of anything he would have been able to see. We, if you look closely at the church, that church doesn't exist anywhere near uh, down in the south of France. That church, in fact, is much closer to the churches that he would have known from the Netherlands. So there's sort of some of his childhood memories coming back into painting. The perspective of the enormous cypress tree at the, at the forefront of the painting, that 
certainly wasn't a was wouldn't have been something he he would have seen. And perhaps it, this this it gives it a very sort of mystical element to this painting. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's it, this sense of it being like an amalgam of the real and the imaginary is really interesting. Partly it's to do with his own maybe wish fulfillment of wanting to be at home in more than one place at once, I guess. Partly it also speaks to the moment in uh, currents of art or art history where painters are trying increasingly to to paint things um, as they are rather than as they look. So he's trying to, um, we think of Monet at the same time, Kandinsky a bit later, of, of moving towards abstraction this isn't obviously an abstract painting, but it's also not a realistic representation of the of the night sky. So it's th- this sense of what we see being a, a combination of visual, but also imaginative, and also emotional, and also fantastical. So and and Van Gogh's able to roll all these things into into one in this picture of something that we simultaneously recognise and don't recognise. But what I do find fascinating is that we do know there are some details that are very real in this painting. And one of those, of course, is that very bright white shining star in the middle of the image, as you're looking at it just above and to the right of the looming cypress tree. And this we know from research that's been done that this was his representation of Venus, which would have been very bright in the sky in June in 1889 when he was painting this. So that as well, I think, gives us a a wonderful insight into how closely he was looking in lots of his letters. He he talks about how how much time you have to spend just looking at, at nature, getting to know it, watching the seasons change, watching light change. He sometimes reminds me of Hockney, like that. Um, and so here we know that 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 is that's Venus there, shining brightly in the middle of the painting. Yeah, it's a particularly modern thing, isn't it? It seems to me there's so much. I was in a bookshop yesterday and so many books about nature and about about being in touch with what's happening in nature, being sensitive to it, being protective of it. It feels like Van Gogh's aware of that, perhaps ahead of his time, this real sensitivity and receptivity to, to what's happening in the natural world. Absolutely. So shall we put Van Gogh's interpretation of Venus next to a musical version? And for this, I've chosen Gustav Holst's extract from the planets, um, this stunning work that he wrote, perhaps one of his most famous works. Um, and one of the movements is Venus, the bringer of peace. I think it's nice sometimes to put some musical interpretations just right next to a painting to see perhaps how both make us feel. For me, Van Gogh's painting is is so full of energy. And there's, I'll bring us to an extract later on that I think reflects that better. But for me, there is something in this painting that's very almost otherworldly. And in Holst's The Planets, you very much get this sense of of otherworldliness, and particularly in this movement. So let's have a listen to how Holst depicts Venus in music.
So that was an extract of Gustav Holst's The Planets in the Movement, Venus. Just to pop that side by side with the beautiful, bright, shining Venus that we see in the centre of Van Gogh's painting. One of the things that I always find amazing with Van Gogh's work and that is so evident in today's painting is the energy with which he seems to almost attack the canvases. Um, and we can see that because when you, if you get a chance to go up and stand in front of one, I think in the Courtauld in London, you can get very, really close up to a couple of his paintings. You can see the brushwork is so thick. It's almost as though he sort of throws it onto the canvas. And what we're left with on the canvas, and this painting is no exception, are incredible brushstrokes that are almost in 3D. That's it, isn't it? It's one of the things we miss to looking at it on a flat screen or, you know, the, the virtual world doesn't really give us is this sense of the three-dimensional in, in painting and Van Gogh. I think one of the reasons he's so so popular, so beloved, is this physical sense of of what he's doing in the moment that's, that translates even across time now. We can see him almost painting, like you say, the energy, this kind of visionary life force that's in all his paintings, that thing that the night sky, even the trees, even the houses sort of teem with life. Absolutely. And this, yes, this incredible energy for me is as though this painting, it, it can't sit still, can it? That sky is constantly being blown around before our eyes. He looks as though he works fast, almost, you know, dare we say it, in a sort of manic fashion, the way that the paint seems to arrive onto the canvas. Yeah, the, there's a lovely quote from John Berger about the his Van Gogh's paintings imitate the active existence of what they depict, the labour of being, which I think is really on the nail. That's beautiful, isn't it? Perhaps, although although New York is probably a bit of a trek for, for most of us to go and see this painting, I would highly recommend popping onto the MoMA website because they've done a fabulous reproduction of this painting where you can really zoom in and even on a screen... I'm not always a huge fan of looking at art on screens, but with the technology they've used, it really allows you to be able to see in see the, the 3D element of his painting to get really close to the brush strokes. So we'll head to our third extract of music. For this, I've chosen a work that really picks up on this energy we've been just discussing in the, the energy of the brush strokes, the, the sort of almost the sense of the windswept that comes off this painting as we stare at it. I've chosen a work by Henri Dutieu, a French composer who died only in 2013. This was a work he wrote in 1978 and it's called Timbre, Espace et Mouvement. And it's subtitled La Nuit Étoilée. And we know it's a work he wrote very much inspired by this painting. Interesting in line with what we were just talking about, how we can't always, we don't always have the chance to go and stand in front of these paintings ourselves. And in fact, he didn't get to see this painting until after he'd finished rehearsing with the Washington Orchestra that he was premiering this with. He, when the rehearsals were finished, he then headed to New York and got to stand in front of the real thing, which apparently he was incredibly moved by. What he tries to do in his work, Tambres Passé Mouvement, is he wants to create a sort of echo a musical echo of this painting. He describes how he can see, he feels he can see a beating rhythm in the painting. He's really um, very moved by the sense of space that he feels the painting gives to us, the audience. And it's true when you look at it, the sky is enormous in this 
painting. He also describes, I think it's lovely in the sleeve notes to this recording, a cosmic whirling. And he wants to try and get that into his music. The extract we're going to hear, I think you will agree, um, very much does that. We hear the music becoming almost chaotic in its organisation. You have the feeling of, sort of stepping into um, a whirlwind of, of music. Let's have a listen. So that was Henri Dutier's Timbre, Espace et Mouvement. That was from a little extract from the end of the first movement, Nebulas. It was performed by the National Orchestra of Lille, conducted by Daryl Ang, and that's on the Naxos label. We'll make sure that we pop all the details of these in the description for you and on our website so you can have a longer listen if you want to of any of these works we play. Yeah, that's about as far from the Holst, the kind of ethereal tranquility of the Holst as it's, far to, as it's possible to be, isn't it? The, it's so interesting that he's receptive to the kind of energy and the the noise of the painting, really. It's such a vibrant kind of, um, almost kind of vibrating image. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because a lot of people have often, because he painted this work while he was in the asylum, have often interpreted it as a sort of... A, pictorial representation of such a troubled mind. In fact, when you read the letters from really around the time when he was painting this particular painting and, and others from the summer of um, 1889, he'd actually found, he often says, the, the times in his life when he's most at peace, when he feels his somewhat troubled mind is stilled, is when he's painting. And these paintings, though he wasn't very impressed with this one, was he, ironically, this painting was clearly a, a real release I'm not. I'm. I'm never sure about that interpretation of them being troubled. I think. I think he was really releasing his so much of his energy into these works. I think that's right. I think pr- probably in the in the modern day he would have a, a more, you know, a more clear, less speculative diagnosis, wouldn't he? I think painting, especially drawing as well, but painting especially for Van Gogh is a way of resisting perhaps his internal darkness, and you can see that. It, the energy that he sees in the world is translated to his painting really clearly and really vividly. And I think that's. I, I'm not sure that. I'm not sure the painting. It wasn't a real release for him. I think. It, I think it really helped him in his in his condition rather than uh, rather than being an expression of a darkness. It was a way of of resisting that. The other thing about it is, I think that it's tricky to say this, perhaps, but that his attunement to the energy of being and what it was to you know, like Berger talks about the labour of of being alive was part of his genius as well as his illness. So there's this sense that this kind of what was, what what ailed him was also a kind of superpower I think is really worth considering in his work. And what a superpower it is, these pictures that unbeknownst to him have become just such a part of the the fabric of the artistic world. Yeah, like you say, he's, he, he was sending paintings to Theo, to his brother, and it's worth a word. The letters between him and his brother are incredibly touching and worth really worth a look. Um, but he was sending like parcels of paintings uh, periodically to Theo in Paris. But he didn't send a Starry Night. He didn't think it was any good, which is kind of extraordinary now, to, given the, the kind of impact it's had 
uh, and the kind of the place of fame that it occupies. Absolutely, which is why I thought for our last piece of music, I'd put it next to a work that very similarly has become one of the most listened to pieces of music. We're going to finish today with Debussy's Claire de Lune. I've chosen this because I think it's impossible to look at this painting without and talking about it today without mentioning the moon up there in the right-hand corner of this painting. If you have a reproduction of the painting in front of you at any time, if you put your put your thumb or finger over the moon, all the light is drained from, from the image. We're left with something much darker, much bleaker. And his the way he's managed to paint this, this most brightest, brilliant moon, that bathes the painting not only in light but very much with a with a very special energy. I think is something really really magical in this painting. There's a there's a metaphorical thing here as well, isn't there? That that this we've been talking about resisting darkness and this fact that he's able to find in the dark night sky. I mean, if you've ever taken a photograph of the night sky, it's impossible to get anywhere near it because that we. Anything but the most sophisticated equipment just doesn't reflect what we, what our own eyes can see. And the fact that his eyes have seen even further and even brighter into the night sky, I think, gives us, if we if we want, like a, a kind of metaphorical um, tale about resisting darkness and finding light in unexpected places. So to bring us to our last excerpt of music, Debussy's Claire de Lune as a little homage to Van Gogh's incredibly beautifully painted moon up there in this today's painting. And we'll be hearing this performed by Lawrence Gerthert. That was Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune, a work written, in fact, just one year after today's painting. So to draw this episode to a close, we always like to finish up by just giving you, leaving you with perhaps a few of the things either we haven't managed to fit in or some other suggestions of things if you wanted to delve a bit deeper into the world of Van Gogh or some of the music we've been listening to. We just mentioned there the, the letters, the incredible amount of correspondence we have between Vincent van Gogh and particularly his brother Theo, but also other members of his family. And the museum in Amsterdam have done the most fantastic website where you can search in those letters either by painting or by a, just a, a keyword or by date. You can really go and have a browse, a browse around. If you don't have a copy of it, that's a really like a really good place to start because you can just sort of pick anything you want and it'll bring up these incredible, you know, his voice brought to life um, through his letters. I'll leave you with that. And perhaps a song you introduced me to, in fact, as an extra bit of music to go and listen to, would be Don McLean's A Starry Night, written very much inspired by this painting. 
it's a great song. There are two versions of that, two other versions of that that I'd like to just drop in, which are by Leanne Le Havas, who's a good South London uh, singer, and uh, James Blake. And they're both they're both pretty faithful versions, but it's such a great song, and it's lovely to hear it in different in different versions. For my my recommendations, I've got a few. The if you think about Van Gogh as the kind of archetypal tormented artist. Then we're looking around the same time, um, 1889 is when he paints the Starry Night. So we've got Tolstoy writing the Kreutzer Sonata, wonderful story. Um, Marlowe is writing um, Symphonies 1 and 2, so you can go and have a listen to them and see what another um, kind of pathologically tortured uh, creative mind is doing. And I think the last thing is just a, a couple of paintings of Van Gogh that it's worth branching out to if, if you don't know them and even if you do. One is called the sower there's a link between the starry night and, and the sower in that um the the night the sky is incredibly vivid in in the sower. you just got this man working the fields against the backdrop of this huge sun and the other two are at one called at eternity's gate where we there's a man sat with his head in his hands on a chair sounds simple and dark but it's an incredibly sympathetic and painful portrait of the sorrow of an old man and perhaps finally, um, I think I think probably my favourite Van Gogh picture, which is a, a picture of the postman Joseph Roulin, which is a, a friend of his, I think, from from his time in Arles. Just a simple picture, but tender and completely sympathetic painting of of an ordinary person whose life is just dedicated to simple service. Particularly touching that picture, I think, isn't it? Because he was somebody who didn't always make friends easily, and and I was really one of the people that was um, incredibly sort of faithful. They were very, very close friends and he was friends with the family and they supported him when he wasn't well. Um, and when a lot of people in Arles had turned against him, Rola and his family were, were, were very great friends to him. And I think it's a very touching portrait, that one. That's right. And for all that we talk about, the, the redemptive and the, the hope in in Van Gogh's painting, we have to remember he was difficult to live with. You know, he was he he tried to set up artists' communes and tried to maintain friendships and really with with a few with very few exceptions, really struggled. It was just I think life was was hard for him and life was hard for those near him. And I think it's that's something we probably should acknowledge. Yeah, we're so lucky to be left with the the works that we we have. And we're spoiled in London, aren't we? There are some in the court old. Obviously we've got the sunflowers, so do head out and go and go and have a look, stand in front of them. It's really worth it. I think that draws today's episode to a close. Thank you so much for joining us. A big thank you to the artists that have put work on the Creative Commons licenses so that we can use those excerpts. A big thank you to Naxos today for their help with licensing. If you want any further details of any of the works or a close-up look at the painting, you can take a look in the description of the podcast. I look forward to being with you next time. Bye for now.